You are listening to Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. I am Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, where you phone in with all of your cooking-related questions. I'm here today with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez, and we are back in the United States finally, right? We're we're done with we're done with the majority of our travels. We're good now. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Good. All right. So call in all your questions live to the studio at seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. And uh, today's show is brought to you by three sixty cookware, uh, which it's new. I guess I'm not familiar with it. Are you familiar with it? No. Nastasha. No. Mm-hmm. So three sixty cookware is a, a top of the line stainless steel cookware that is made in America in the greenest cookware manufacturing facility in the country. It can be used to make all of your favorite recipes, but it also gives the option. To cook using vapor technology. What does that mean? I have no idea. Which creates a seal that surrounds the food with intense heat, locking in vitamins, moisture, and flavor without added oil, fat, or excess water. Visit our website at 360cookware.com for more information. Uh, What do you think that means, vapor? Do you think it means they're steaming it? That's what it sounds like. Sounds like it's Mm -hmm. steaming it. When I hear vapor technology and cooking in general, I think steam. Mm -hmm. Steam, right? Yeah. So what they're saying is that they're steaming it. We have a caller. Oh, we have a caller? Yeah. All right. So let's take, uh, let's take the caller, and then hopefully someday we'll figure out what 360 vapor technology is. <laughs> Hello, caller. You're on the air. Hey, is that me? Hey. Outstanding. Um, so I had a question for you, actually, about um, sous vide cooking. Okay. And particularly the vacuum packing. Mm-hmm. So uh, Thomas Keller fairly famously has, has claimed that the, the home units, the, the food savers and things like this, manage to remove moisture. Um, and I'm trying to figure out how that's possible compared to one of the you know, very high-end, you know, eight and ten thousand dollar restaurant systems. Right. Okay. Well, you can, by the way, at home you can get a, a like a commercial grade one now for I think about fifteen hundred bucks, like a really, really, really nice one. It's small. It's not as big as the commercial one, so you don't have to go spend quite as much money. But I think what he's referring to is. Uh, you know, for those of you out there that have a, a food saver, right, which is the kind of the normal one. There's other manufacturers now, but the kind of the one that's been around the longest is the food saver. When it's sucking a vacuum, you have to use specialized vacuum bags that have little um, crisscross lines in them, right? Right. And, and that's is this what you have. You have the food saver. Yeah. Yeah. And so the the problem with those bags is is that the way that it sucks vacuum is by using those little uh, lines as straws and literally sucking the vacuum out of the out of the out of the bag. The problem is is that um, Basically, the air is constantly coming out, and air pressure is pushing on the bag, which forces liquid into those little straws. So if you let it run, right, it sucks the the liquid, literally sucks the liquid out of the bag like it's a straw. And that's probably what he's referring to. I don't think he's referring to it drying something out, right? Now, that doesn't happen in a commercial vacuum machine because, right, in a commercial vacuum machine, the bag is inside of a chamber, and the whole chamber is evacuated. So there's not extra pressure pushing on the outside of the bag while you're sucking the vacuum on the inside. So the liquids tend to stay in the bag. I mean, sometimes you can boil them because as you put a vacuum on something, you lower the temperature at which it boils, it can boil out. But if you don't boil it, the liquids are going to stay in the bag because there's no air pressure on the bag while you're sucking the vacuum. And that's kind of the key, aside from the fact that uh, uh, the Food Savers vacuum pump isn't nearly as strong as a regular vacuum, you know, a real commercial vacuum pump. That's the fundamental difference. And that's why a chamber machine is so useful as compared to a machine that just sucks the vacuum uh, on the bag itself. Does that make make sense? It does. Is there is there a way that you can sort of eyeball it and make sure that you can use something like this? I, I just bought one of these um, uh, um, sous vide pros right. from 
from polyscience. Yeah. Um, so I'm sort of tapped out as far as equipment uh-huh. for well, a little while. Here, so, um, yeah, here's the good news, right? So uh, yeah. I, I have a, had a food saver. It broke, but I almost always used it to seal potato chip bags. Or if you're going to uh, save something for a long time in the freezer, it's really good. Um, if you have to use a food saver to bag sauces, a lot of people will freeze the sauces first and then put them in as frozen so that it won't get sucked up. But uh, to me, that's kind of a pain in the, pain in the rear. I tend to do most of my work just using Ziploc bags. Um, like a lot of things, like let's say you're going to work with fish, right? If you're going to work with fish, you don't really want to suck a, a hard vacuum on it because it, it tends to hurt the texture of the fish, right? It, or, sure. it, or even chicken. If you suck a hard vacuum on a chicken, it tends to make it taste more like a canned chicken when it's cooked for some reason. I don't really know the reason why. It's just test after test we've seen this, we've seen this happening. So uh, 90% of the time when I'm cooking at home, actually basically 100% unless I'm doing eggs, I put my stuff in Ziploc bags, and it's extremely easy to learn the technique to pack very effectively in a Ziploc. There's, there's pictures on, on cookingissues.com, but briefly what you do is, is you, you seal the entire bag. You put some liquid in, like usually oil or butter or whatever, or, or a sauce if you're doing something like that. You seal the bag, and you leave just – you put your finger in the top where it's not sealed. One section isn't sealed. The rest is sealed. And then you, you uh, um, put the bag underwater. As you put the bag underwater, the water displaces the air, and right before the bag sinks underneath the liquid entirely, you snip the last little bit closed. You press it closed, and – it works great. I mean, I wouldn't use it on very, very, very high temps because the, those Ziploc bags aren't meant to get all the way to the boil. But for 90% of what you're doing or more, it's a really good technique and doesn't require any sort of uh, equipment. And, and it handles sauces very, very well. So I, I moved quite a long time ago to that kind of a technique at home instead of using uh, instead of using the food saver, which makes an excellent potato chip sealer, by the way. Um, I mean, I don't know if that's – another thing, if you have the, the – the, the polyscience. Here's one little um, one little note I'll give you because uh, I mean, we, if you're at home, you might not have this problem. But you know, we've been using the new circulator at the at the school at the French Culinary for quite a while, and under the use of a bunch of people who aren't necessarily trained to use it, one of the main problems we've had with the new unit is people have set the offset. Okay, so like if you notice on the new circulator, if you press the button, you can change between Fahrenheit and Celsius. There's a, it, it, but the next thing after that is something called the offset, and I've had a bunch of chefs turn the offset like two and three degrees because they thought they were setting the temperature and then the circulator is off by two or three degrees and it's not that there's anything wrong with the circulator it's just that people have uh it's it's too easy for them to to mess with the offset so if anyone plays around with your circulator make sure they put the offset back uh, to zero. The best thing to do is to is to put your new circulator into an ice water bath, l- lots of ice and water. Let it like set it to like minus ten Celsius or something like that, just so that it doesn't want to heat the bath. Let it run for like ten minutes, and then you can see exactly how far off of zero is. They're within a half a degree always, but you can set the offset then down or up to exactly calibrate it to zero, and then it'll be dead dead perfect forever as long as no one messes with the offset. Is this, is this helpful at all or no? Definitely. Very much so. All right. Well, listen, uh, thank, thanks for calling. And, uh, you know, uh, call back any time if you want more advice on, on, uh, on bagging. We love, we love bagging. Right, Nastasha? We do. Even we I do. can do it. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much. <laughs> thanks a lot, guys. Okay. Um, all right. So we have uh, another question in. And uh, it's from Michael Griffiths, who was actually at the Harold McGee Lecture Series last week. And uh, I was a horribly or two weeks ago, I was horribly, horribly, horribly sick. Like, I don't know. I've never kind of been... It's unlike you. I was, I mean, I, you know, 
chills, like a horrible, like, uh, let me put it this way, uh, without getting too graphic, <laughs> right? Uh, it turns out that if you uh, expel everything out of your body for like days and days without being able to take anything in, that you lose some of your, uh, you lose the enzymes, you lose the, uh, you know, the enzymes that allow you to, to digest lactose, right? So, uh, you know, I now know, it very temporarily, I know what it's like to be lactose intolerant. It sucks. Yeah. Yeah, it really sucks. I'll never make fun of someone for it again because it really sucks, you know? Um, anywho, so I was very sick. I wasn't at my best during the class. In fact, I had to leave uh, a couple hours early just because, you know, the, the shaking, sh- uh, shaking and chills and the, you know, it was a little much with the, the, they had a space heater fired directly underneath me and had me wrapped in like three, three sets of coats so that I, my body just wasn't regulating temperature. It was just a nightmare. Uh, but unfortunately, I didn't get to set up the rotary evaporator, and uh, Michael really wanted to see the rotary evaporator, and it didn't get set up because I wasn't there, and uh, there was a seal missing, and so it was never able to get uh, worked properly. And I, I apologize, Michael. If you're ever in the in the neighborhood, I owe you a rotovap demo, right, Nastasha? Right. No? Yeah, yeah, that was my yeah. fault. Anyway, no, not your fault. I mean, like, I wasn't there. I wasn't available, but um, we'll show you how to fire up the rotovap. It's it's one of those things where if, you, if you're not familiar with every single part of the rotary evaporator, and for those of you who don't know what the heck I'm talking about. A rotary evaporator is a piece of laboratory equipment that's a vacuum still. We're actually demoing one tomorrow on the Martha Stewart show. Yes. Yeah, which we'll, I'll talk more about that later. Um, but uh, uh, you need to know what every single part does. And if, if you're just kind of remembering instead of like knowing intimately every part, it's almost impossible to set up properly. But I'll, I'll do it for you if you're ever in the neighborhood. And I happen to be in the neighborhood and firing at the rotary at the same time. But he has an actual question. Uh, two, actually. One is about parsnips. So uh, he juices champion uh, parsnips in the champion uh, juicer. The champion juicer, for those of you that don't know, it, uh, it's a great little juicer. It doesn't do citrus. It doesn't do wheatgrass, but it's basically got these little teeth that spin, and it just you know, m- mashes the juice all to heck, mashes fruit or whatever vegetables all to heck, and then presses the juice through a screen, and then the, the pulp, which is fairly dry, you can run it again if it's not, comes out the front. I love the champion. We juice apples all day long in that thing. We juice carrots in that thing you know ginger horseradish it'll juice most anything um so uh, he's juicing parsnips in it and he's taking the juice and he's heating it and then it's all of a sudden thickening up and i'm guaranteeing i'm not guaranteeing i don't know but my guess is that the reason it's thickening up is that parsnips actually contain a good bit of starch in them and so if you're taking the juice and heating it you're probably functionalizing the starch this is my guess and it's thickening up just like uh, just like a starch would that i mean that's just my my guess this is why you know you know parsnips contain a lot of starch and to prove it like if you store them for a long time they get sweeter because the starch is being converted to sugar so if you have a parsnip that's not very sweet it's going to have a proportionally higher amount of starch in it and I guess depending on how you're juicing it or how much the the thing is being broken up by the juicer you're going to get more or less of that starch in the juice I don't know if you're adding the pulp back to it either to to add that but there's definitely going to be some free starch in there um, that is you know not functionalized until it's been heated and boiled and then it's, it's going to thicken up this is my guess uh, Another question, and we'll take this before we go off into, into break, is he has a question about using agar and marshmallows. Um, so a, a lot of people actually are interested. And the agar, by the way, is, for those of you that don't know, uh, is my favorite hydrocolloid, my favorite kind of gelling agent. I love agar because it's easily available. It's you know completely natural. been used for like a bazillion years, and it's extremely versatile. I love it. Uh, in fact, we're teaching a class where I'm going to do a whole bunch of agar tricks this Thursday and Friday. We're doing yeah. hydro- hydrocolloids at the, at the FCI. Uh, so... Um, 
Anyway, so the holy grail of, for a lot of people are vegetarian marshmallows. And, um, and so typically the marshmallow will be made with uh, gelatin or a mixture of gelatin egg white to provide the foaming. The gelatin sets, and that provides the structure for the marshmallow. And so his question is, is uh, substituting agar in instead of gelatin? And I would not uh, do that. I would not use agar. Agar, um, agar is very porous and uh, tends to have a lot of cinnaresis, a lot of a lot of weeping in it. Typically, people use uh, mixtures of carrageenan, which is a similar gelling agent, and uh, and locust bean gum, which provide. So when you take carrageenan, kappa carrageenan, there's a bunch of different kinds. When you take kappa carrageenan, which is very brittle, right, but also you know is, forms a good structure, and then you mix it with locust bean gum, another you know uh, classic you know all natural. It's from a seed, uh, and and you mix that. The locust bean gum softens the carrageenan and makes it somewhat gelatin-like, and so there's very specific mixtures of um, of kappa uh, carrageenan and possibly other types of carrageenan and locust bean gum that are manufactured specifically to make uh, marshmallows. Um, and they're made by the C.P. Kelco Corporation. That's C.P. K-E-L-C-O. And uh, one that they make specifically for marshmallows is Genutine G-E-N-U-T-I-N-E Genutine X9303 and I believe it's available through La Sanctuaire's website or La Sanctuaire's website out in California and if not, you could contact CP Calco directly and find a source for it, but that is a special carrageenan mix that's made to function just like gelatin in a marshmallow and it should whip up without uh, any problems. If you go into the hydrocolloid primer section of the of our blog, Cooking Issues. There's a little discussion that people have done on vegetarian marshmallows that might also be of help. Anyway, hope this was helpful. We'll go out to the first commercial break. Call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Cooking Issues. Oh, how you feel, brother? Feeling good. You feel good? Feeling good. so much bone, brother. How you feel, man? I feel all right. I call your name. I don't want no people to know you're in here. How you feel, fellas? Hey, Jam! Sure getting down. Look at him! Ha! We're gonna have a bump good time. Take us higher. Fred, 
listening to Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. Call in all of your cooking-related questions, technical or not, to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. We're going to be here for another segment or so, so you still have time to call. Um, Okay, so... Uh, here's a question. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I waxed Rhapsodic, apparently, about the wonders of fresh tofu, uh, and uh, Derek has made it himself, but encountered two big problems. When he's heating the ground soybeans to make soy milk, the mixture foams up an absurd amount, uh, and containing the mess was problematic. You know, I, too, have this problem uh, at home, absurd messes, but for many, many reasons, not just for making tofu. Uh, cooking in small batches made it more manageable, but also more time-consuming. Any tricks for controlling the foaming? All right, well, uh, I think I said mentioned this before. The book to get on tofu is uh, The Book of Tofu uh, by William uh, Shirtleff and Akiko uh, I, I, I can't pronounce her name very probably but uh, Ayagi how do you pronounce that? I don't know I'm terrible at pronunciation I'm just such a jerk such a moron anyway I happen to have it in front of me because I was rereading it and trying to figure out all your problems I think I found out your problem uh, when you're making here's the process of tofu for those of you that don't that don't know making tofu you need to go first of all go make your own tofu uh, if you want like a, a highly highly technical tofu source actually Nathan Mirvold's book when it's coming out Nathan Mirvold and Chris Young the, the Uber tech book that's coming out uh, very soon like the, the tech book to end all tech books has a huge section on tofu and also on uh, tofu like curds from other things like from peanuts uh, I believe from edamame and from, from many of these things so that, that, that's get, like when that comes out that's going to be the revolutionary tofu tofu curd to end all tofu curd like books I think but uh, in the meantime I will, I will tell you this so what you do is you take uh, soybeans right you know hopefully relatively good quality soybeans that aren't too too old you want to soak them for eight to ten hours you break them open you look at the inside to verify that they've soaked through but haven't over soaked right then you i usually use about a, a cup and a half which is what uh you know the shirt left book recommends then uh you're going to blend those with v- with very hot water in a blender right then you're going to add that to more water and heat it Right until it just gets to the boil. You're not going to boil it with all the pulp in it. Then you're going to uh, pour out that you know you're going to get a sack like a cloth. And then you're going to pour the that entire mix. It's got the it's got the you know the pulp and the and the soy milk into a sack and press it out. Then you're going to remoisten the you know the stuff that's left over, which is called okara. That's like the hulls and the solids, right? Remix that with some more hot water, bring it up to a boil, and then and then pour it pour it back out again to get the 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 soy milk out. And then then you boil the milk uh, to kill you know kill all the the enzymes in it to prevent you from uh, from using all the, all the protein. If you try and boil it with the with the actual okara in it with the pulp in it, I think you're going to have horrible boiling mess problems. You're probably going to get uh, okara you know boiled and stuck onto the bottom of your pot. It's going to be a king hell mess. So uh, what I typically do is a little bit different from what they do in the because in the book they're very concerned about energy consumption, which is smart because this guy is very very concerned about all this kind of stuff. But in general, I have about seven and a half cups of water that you bring uh, you know you keep it hot it's basically almost at the boil and then you have uh, another pot with uh, another like eight cups of water uh, boiling in it and it's just going to sit there and boil and so what you'll do is you'll take uh, you'll take like a half of the soybeans that you're going to have soaked if you start with a cup and a half it'll increase slightly after it soaks and you blend that with two cups of water out of the out of the boiling water pot blend the hell out of it hopefully in a vita prep then pour it into the pot with seven and a half cups then blend another batch of uh, soybeans with two cups of water, pour, pour it in, take like a half cup of that boiling water, rinse out your blender, 
pour it in, right? Bring that whole thing to uh, a boil, then drain it off, press out the okara, mix another three cups of the boiling water that you have left over with the okara to get the rest out, squeeze it again, and then you have about a cup left over to use with your solidifier. Now, uh, he also had problems. He was using nigari. Nigari is the traditional Japanese solidifier that's used, and it's basically a derivative of seawater. It's not the, the sodium part. They'll take the sodium chloride off uh, off the seawater, and then all the other calcium and magnesium salts that are left over, and it, you make the, the nigari out of. And you can buy nigari a bunch of different ways. You can buy it as a liquid. You can buy it as a solid. I have to say this. I have not had that good luck with uh, nigari myself. Um, I, I would say you'd probably – I don't know what you're using, but in, our, in the batch size that I do, which starts with a cup and a half of soybeans and ends up with about 15 um, – you know, 15 cups of water added to it. Um, we end up, I, they recommend using like two and a half uh, to four teaspoons of the nigari, depending on whether you're using the solid or, or the liquid. But I use Epsom salts, which I really like, even though apparently I'm a Philistine jerk, like moron for liking Epsom salts. But you can just go into Dwayne Reed or CVS or whatever, buy Epsom salts. Don't use too much of it because it's a laxative. I use about two teaspoons of Epsom salts. Epsom salt is a magnesium sulfate. It's awesome stuff. You can also use calcium chloride, which all of you hydrocolloid fans probably have sitting around, even though it tastes horrible. It's not going to be that noticeable in the in the final batch. I would use also about two teaspoons of that, or two teaspoons of magnesium chloride, which isn't going to taste nearly as bad as the calcium chloride. Um, and you can use any one of those things. I've really had no luck using acid to make it, but other people, other people have. And you're going to want to put it in, in several stages, you stir some in, and then you pour some over the top and let it sit, and it takes minutes for the curd to form. Another thing you're going to want to do is when you're getting the curds, you're going to want to press down on them and get the way out. Don't try to agitate it too much. You're going to break the curds up into tiny things, and it's going to be a nightmare, and all hell is going to break loose. Uh, so anyway, so I hope that... Does that sound helpful, or does that sound... Yeah, wait, helpful? I have a question. Okay. My mom buys tofu, and my dad won't eat it, because he's like a meat and potatoes kind of guy. So... What's yeah. the best recipe you have with tofu? Well, that's interesting. When I make my own tofu, I tend to just want to eat it because you put a lot of work into it and it's delicious. I, I, I hate the idea of taking tofu and making it into some fake other crap. You know what I mean? The problem with most tofu that you buy, unless you're going to a, like a, like a high-quality tofu shop where they're making their tofu every day, is that the tofu's been soaked in uh, so much water. It's sitting there in water that all of the actual flavor of the soybean has been leached out of it, and it's basically worthless. You know, when you're making your own tofu, you have I – mean, I'm, I'm not going to offend anyone here. I, mean, I don't mean it's worthless. You know what I mean? It's just it's not for me. Like, I never use it. I never buy it. Like, I like making tofu and using it, but I never buy it. When you make it yourself, you can, you can use – like, you can keep it like a cloud tofu, which is not pressed at all, which is amazing in soups. A lot of Korean soups uh, done that way. It's delicious. You know what I mean? You can make a, a very soft tofu. You can make a firmer tofu. You can mix stuff into the tofu and set it. But for me, the main key is that you haven't – completely gotten rid of all the the original whey that's in there and there's no extra added flavorless water that's leached out what flavor it has because tofu has a really delicate amazing flavor when it's used when it's when it's made fresh and it's used just as is and i literally like i can't i, I never have enough to use in recipes because i'm always just you know cutting it and then eating it with like a, an amazing dipping sauce but you know if you're going to buy tofu you know, i'd fry the hell out of it Okay. That's going to help. You know what I mean? That's going to help. You know, I don't know. Like, I'll uh, see if she can make it. Yeah, making tofu is amazing. It, and it shows you it shows you kind of what you can do. I mean, it's really, it, I just don't, I mean, I just don't much like the tofu that you buy in the store. Like, I just can't. I mean, I can eat it when it's, you know, ch- 
chopped up and put into things, mm-hmm. but I'm never like, wow, you know, store-bought tofu, that's amazing. <laughs> we can't wait to have another thing of uh, store-bought tofu. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Dan from Seattle writes in and says, Hello, I'm a fairly serious amateur cook. After enough media horror stories, I've started grinding my own meat, uh, essentially all the time for any recipe that calls for ground beef. You have, uh, you have great, uh, you know, stick to and patience thing, because that's kind of a pain in the butt to haul out your meat grinder every time you're going to make meat. I have one problem on a relatively frequent basis. I get small bone chips even after very thorough trimming. Is there any systematic way to avoid this? Okay. Uh, first of all, notes on notes on meat. Uh, when you're grinding your own meat, obviously you want to make sure that the cutters are sharp. I don't know whether you're using a hand grinder or the KitchenAid attachment, right? But you want to make sure the cutters stay sharp. Otherwise, you're going to be pasting out and uh, and hurting, you know, basically pasting out the fat and overheating it when it's going in. Another thing is you're going to want to cut any kind of uh, sinew or anything you don't want to eat out in general because it's not going to be pleasant and sometimes it can get stuck in the grinder as it goes through. So that's that's also bad. Third, when you're grinding meat, you're going to want to, and I haven't answered your question yet, I realize that. Third, when you're grinding uh, meat, you're going to want to almost par-freeze it, right? So that uh, so that the, t- the texture stays good when it freezes through. You want it, like, not frozen solid, but basically where it just starts to feel stiff and almost got a little bit of a crunch on the outside where it starts to freeze, don't freeze it harder than that. You feed it through, you're going to have much better uh, results straight off the bat, right? Now, some people pass it through twice. It really depends on the technique you're using, what kind of texture you want, whether you need to pass it through once or twice. But those are the basics of it. I think the main problem people have, and I know you say you're doing a thorough trimming, is uh, not trimming the the meat properly. If you're putting uh, just big chunks of meat in and, you're, and the sinews going in and cartilage is going in, you're not going to have a, a good product. So I think trimming it. Uh, before you grind it is the most important thing you can do. Trim it into the pieces, then put those pieces on a sheet tray, put them in the freezer, par-freeze them, then grind them. That's the way to get good results. Also, remember, please make sure to thoroughly clean your and sanitize your meat grinder so that nothing gets in there because you know, otherwise you're introducing the same problems that you could get in commercially ground meat. Now, as for bones, I'm if the best if you're buying meat that was cut on a bandsaw right so like you're buying like just chunks of beef that were cut on a bandsaw and then trimming there's always the possibility because i don't know what cut of meat you're using right but there's always the possibility that you'll get a little piece of like chine bone or something in there that's very hard to see now you could when you trim trim the pieces before you grind them and before you f- uh, freeze them down to to grind them, if you trim all the pieces down and feel all over them, you know, just rub your fingers all around them, you'll be able to feel if there's any sort of any sort of chips. But one way to do it is to buy if you're buying whole muscle cuts, right, like whole pieces to to grind and then trimming them into the into the pieces yourself before you grind them. That's the way to avoid a, a, a lot of bones because you can see if someone's cut through, for instance, like the spine or something like that. Or you see like a lot of bone things, you can see the entire structure of the bone, and it's going to be a lot easier to cut all of those pieces out and trim down than it's going to be if someone just takes meat and puts it in a bandsaw, and, and it's hard to tell what the bone structure and the muscle structure is, right? So that's the first uh, thing to do, and it also gives you like a real sense for the quality of the meat that you're using because you're going to be chopping it into strips yourself, um, because I, because I, I, that's when I grind, that's typically what I'm doing, and I don't have problems with bone chips, so I'm assuming. I just, I'm just assuming that you're buying 
pre-cut meat, uh, like stew meat that's been like put through uh, a bandsaw, and that's always there's always a slight chance that someone's going to get a bone chip in. What do you think, Nastasha? I think that's a good answer, dude. Yeah, we have to yeah. take a break. Oh, all right. So uh, going on to our second break, call your questions in to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128, cooking issues. To cooking issues on the Heritage Radio Network. Call in all of your cooking-related questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. So, uh, so Nastasha, tomorrow's a big day. We're going to be on uh, You're Martha. You're going to be on the Martha Stewart show. Well, someone's going to need to run the Rotovap while I'm talking to her, right? No. Huh? No, you're doing it legally. Yeah, but someone needs to run it. Someone physically needs to run the machine while I'm there. Uh, for people out there who are thinking of getting a Rotovap, it does not run itself, folks. The machine does not run itself. And we're doing a live segment tomorrow, which is going to include – we're going to carbonate. We're going to be doing a, a gin and tonic where we're – actually, it's pretty cool. Uh, we're going to take up – so for those of you out there that have access to liquid nitrogen, kudos to you. If not, get yourself access to liquid nitrogen. It's an amazing, amazing material. So we're going to take, uh, we're going to take blood oranges because Nastasha is fascinated with blood oranges, and we're going to uh, – <laughs> Uh, use uh, an enzyme, Pectinex SPL, our favorite miracle enzyme, and we're going to chemically supreme the the, uh, the the blood oranges. And the reason to do that is because uh, supreming, by the way, for those of you that aren't hip hip to the fact, right? So with the way supreming is basically where you you cut the peel off and then you and then you slice so you don't you only have the little little vesicles, little pips. You don't have any of the uh, any of the uh, what's it called the the membrane. Oh. Yeah, the membrane in there, right? So that's supreming, right? Problem with supreming a blood orange is if you supreme a blood orange, they're going to leak everywhere, and we don't want any leakage because we don't want the we want the drink to stay perfectly clear. We don't want any blood orange juice leaking out of the thing, so we're not going to supreme them. Normally, we're going to use Pectinex SPL, our favorite uh, uh, pectin uh, lyase slash hemicellulose uh, breaking down enzyme. That's the same one we use to make French fries. It's the same one we use when we're clarifying any any damn fruit juice, right? We, mm-hmm. use, we, we go through SPL like the end of the world is coming, and you can buy it from cookingissues.com. Uh, yes or no? Yeah, we have a little bit left. Well, we have to get more. I mean, yeah. we use that stuff all the time. Anyway, it's a miracle enzyme. The guys at Novazymes who make it, they admit that it's a miracle enzyme. 
Pectinex SPL. Anyway, so uh, we're going to take uh, Pectinex SPL and chemically suprem it so that we don't have to. We can get rid of all the membranes without actually touching, uh, you know, with a knife the uh, the blood orange. And then we're going to put that in liquid nitrogen and freeze it solid. And what what happens there is is that uh, when you freeze uh, citrus in liquid nitrogen and then really hard and then you hit it with a rolling pin, uh, all the little juice vesicles, the little pips break apart. Uh, and they stay whole and they're not broken and then you can use them uh, as a garnish which is what we're going to do so we're basically going to pour a gin and tonic over a bunch of these uh, frozen blood orange things and we tried it yesterday it's pretty it's pretty darn cool pretty pretty good looking it tastes good and uh, Don Lee uh, bartender friend of ours Don Lee suggested we call it gin sack sack after the Korean sack sack pulpy drink Sack sack. Anyway, so we're going to do that. We're going to run the rotary evaporator uh, live, which we've never done it live before, have we? For a live show? Yeah, for Jimmy Fallon. Well, Jimmy Fallon was pre-recorded. We ran it like it was live, but it was pre-recorded. So anyway, uh, so uh, we'll get to have the fun of running a rotary evaporator. I think we're going to do – we normally do scotch and peanuts, but we're going to do bourbon and peanuts because our good folks at Maker's Mark sent us a whole bunch of Maker's Mark, and that's what we're going to use. So what else are we doing on that show, Stas? And I think the ISI – Trick. Oh yeah, we're going to do some uh, ISI infusion with cocoa nibs. Uh, at least this is what I think. Well, we'll see whether they pare us down. But anyway, that's what that's what we're going to work on. Speaking of pears, I know I spoke about this before. <laughs> I don't want to get too into it because I know I've spoken about it before. I don't want to bore the hell out of you guys. But this, I have a, uh, 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 I need help on this. The t- obviously the two pears that Nastasha and I tasted that were like, damn, I need that pear, right? Damn! One was Narun Barun, N-A-R-U-N-B-A-R-U-N, right? It's in the list of stuff at the Brogdale, which is the Miracle Fruit Collection in Kent that Nastasha and I visited a couple weeks ago. Narun Barun is the pear that uh, it eats like a pear, it's juicy like a pear, it com- has no astringency whatsoever, and has the aroma and taste of a quince. It's a miracle pear. Sucker is a miracle. However, it is nowhere else to be found. I could not find any other collections that have it. I couldn't find any references to it. If anyone out there, and we, we've gotten in touch with uh, the Agricultural Extension, uh, the, the, the Germplasm Library for Pears in the U.S., which is in Corvallis, Oregon. We haven't heard back from them yet. But if any of you have any knowledge of this pear or of any other pear that tastes like uh, and smells like a quince but has no astringency, please get in touch with us because I'm desperately seeking this. It's a miracle pear. Hey, Dave, how do you spell it? N-A-R-N-A-R-U-N, new word, B-A-R-U-N, Narun Barun. Uh, and it, I think it's derived from Turkish meaning like like awesome scent or something like that. I think it, in, Turk, in Turkish, I think it means like awesome scent or graceful scent or something like that. Mm-hmm. The other pair that we can't seem to find that was delicious was uh, Nimrod. And I know it sounds like, you know, like, like a moron, like Nimrod, but it was right there on the thing. And we'll put pictures on because I'm going to put the pear post up soon, God willing. Uh, but Nimrod tasted like c- candy. The pear t- Tasted like candy, so we want anyone to find these. Am I correct? We want yes. anyone to find these pears. Yes. Help us find these pears, please. Help us find these pears. Um, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. So uh, also, uh, we we're working on a, a, a new project, one that we've actually been working on before, that we're extremely extremely excited about, and it's not technically rela- uh, technical related at all. At least we tried to make it technically related, but we couldn't. No. Is uh, Dragon's Beard Candy. So for those of you out there who uh, don't know anything about Dragon's Beard Candy, um, what, you, what you're basically doing is it's hand-pulled cotton candy, right? And so uh, what you do is, is you cook uh, a mixture of sugar. Technically, they would use maltose, uh, the, the 
Chinese recipes I've seen use maltose, but you can just use a little bit of corn syrup. So like for, I think we did like a kilo of sugar and like uh, 100 or 200 grams of corn syrup, uh, like a teaspoon of vinegar, which helps invert the sugar even more so that you're not going to get too much crystallization problems. Water, you cook the whole thing up to about 133 Celsius, right? You pull it off at like 132, it's going to rise up. Uh, and then you let it cool down. You set it into kind of hockey puck shapes, right? Then after it sets into a hockey puck shape hard, you nuke it for like 10 seconds to make it pliable again. And then you form it into a donut. And then as you, after you form it into a donut, you pull it. Uh, in your hands, keeping it very even, and you keep dredging it in. Uh, we used cornstarch. You can use rice flour. We use cornstarch. You keep dredging it in this, and then flipping it as a figure eight, and and basically every time you flip it as a figure eight and put it back into a circle again, and keep pulling it, you're doubling the number of strands. So we do this like like thirteen, uh, fourteen times, which is like you know two to the. 13th, so we're talking thousands of, of stre- threads by the time you're done. Hence, Dragon's Beard, because it looks like little like threads of, of candy. The stuff is amazing. The stuff is awesome. It's got an, a fantastic texture. It's totally different from, from cotton candy. The trick is, and we're going to put it up on the blog, the trick is pulling it the right way. And so, you can look on, uh, vi- there's videos on the web. A guy named uh, Peter Pang, I'm not making that up, Peter Pang, P-A-N-G, has a, um, and it's his recipe that we use, basically. He has a, a thing where you can see it, and there's a bunch of things if you look up Dragon beard on the internet that you can see uh, people doing this but they don't really tell you the key here's the key to it to do it to do it right is basically the front hand and you'll have to look on the on the website but the front hand holds still the back hand uh, pulls the candy and then you re- you reverse grip it again and pull it and that's the that's the trick if you really whenever this is any chef by the way it's not just with dragon's beard I almost always ignore everything that a chef is saying because a lot of times it's wrong mm-hmm. and I've spent all of my time focusing on their hands like how how are their hands connected to the food how is their hand connected to the knife like for instance like learning soba I was at a soba class well soba is you know buckwheat noodles and I was uh, at a soba class once and everyone was looking at the chef's face and while the chef was sitting there cutting the, the noodles by hand because you cut the soba noodles with a hand with a special knife. Useless. Well, you're going to look at the guy's face. The guy's face doesn't cut noodles. You know what I mean? Yeah. The guy's hand cuts noodles. So you want to sit there and like watch, watch the dude's hand and that's how you learn anything. It's the same thing with the dragon's beard. The only way that we were able to get somewhat proficient is not by the instructions that are on the web because they're basically useless. It's, it's watching their hands and seeing what's happening and uh, then practicing. Now, that's the good that's news. That's a good tip. That's a good tip, right? Mm-hmm. The the bad news is is that we, that you know I kind of like my job is a tech guy, right? The FCI, so I figured we're going to tech it up. So I was like, we're not going to use rice flour or cornstarch or any stupid. Cra- oh, by the way, I also spray it with a little Pam before I start. So I'm cheating, so you know, don't tell anyone. That's kind of technical. Yeah, kind of technical. Yeah, right. There you go, Pam. <laughs> Boom, tech. Anyway, so no, so we were like, okay, we're going to use. Well, we tried tapioca and sorbet. Absorbit N. By the way, when you ask for tapioca maltodextrin and you want to make a powder out of an oil, I, I mean, I don't know how many times I've said this to people. Do not say just tapioca maltodextrin. Say Absorbit uh, M. I think uh, tapioca maltodextrin from the National Starch Corporation because no other tapioca maltodextrin will make a powder out of an oil. Anyway, that said, I said a million times, yeah, it still happens. Anyway, whatever. So uh, we try to mix a flavor for oil with a tapioca maltodextrin and then cut it with cornstarch and the texture wasn't as good, right? Right. Texture's no good. Right. And then we tried, this is, oh, I had such high hopes for this. We, we bought almond flour, which was delicious uh, in Chinatown. It had, it had almond and a little bit of bitter almond in it, so it tasted like an amaretto cookie. Mm-hmm. The flour did. It was great stuff by itself. We then bought like some really expensive uh, freeze-dried 
raspberries and blended them with the uh, almond flour to make a powder, put it through a sieve so it was nice and fine, and then we dragged the uh, the dragon's beard as we were making it instead of through cornstarch through that stuff, and it looked amazing. It tasted amazing. Texture sucked. Texture was terrible. It was not nearly as good, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of unfortunate. So if any of you guys out there have a uh, some sort of technique to, to do this and to tech it up, then I can start demoing it like up, down, left, and right because that stuff is super, super delicious, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, on my way out, I'm going to make a list. This is why people can keep me honest, right, of what posts we're supposed to be working on on the blog. Right. Well, oh, and also people who want to come to the hydrocolloids class. Can they we still can't. Sign up? No, no. Uh, we have a hydrocolloids class. Uh, on fr- uh, this Thursday and Friday, but it's already totally full because it's maxed nice. out at, at seventeen. Well, kind of, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's maxed out at seventeen, so you have to sign up, sign up for the next one. So uh, here are the posts that I'm going to pretend that I'm doing very soon, but we need to get it done. By the way, so uh, we've done a lot of tests recently on kombu. Kombu is delicious. Someone's got to keep me honest. We've done a lot, a lot of interesting work with uh, Kombu. Our good friend Yuji uh, Haraguchi at uh, at True World Foods, our Japanese uh, mega supplier, sent us some amazing Kombu. We tasted it from the top, from the bottom, from the center, different concentrations. So it's really building on our old post on Kombu, which you can check out. I love myself some Kombu. I've got to obviously do the pear post. Yeah. Someday I have to get back and finish those low temperature yeah. cooking things, right? Mm-hmm. But the most recent post we have out is on country ham. And I encourage you to go read it. Uh, I love American country ham. Uh, one of the sponsors, actually, of our show is S. Wallace Edwards, who makes one of the finest country hams uh, here in the United States. Uh, Which one did we have last night? Uh, we had from Finchville Farms. Finchville Farms is a manufacturer in Kentucky uh, that was actually just bought recently a couple of years ago by someone, but who's kept all the old techniques that the Robertsons uh, use, and the Robertsons are still there, uh, you know, curing country hams. But uh, I encourage everyone to buy more American country ham, and just please, please do not. Well, you can cook it if you have to. Don't overcook a country ham, and better yet, don't cook it at all. Slice it on a meat slicer and serve it like prosciutto. So. Uh, go eat your country ham. Try out S. Wallace Edwards. Try out uh, Finchville Farms. Try out Colonel Newsom's out of Kentucky. Try Alan Benton out of uh, out of Tennessee. Try uh, Burger Smokehouse, which makes a bunch of commodity hams. Also makes a really delicious uh, attic aged one, which is their special one. They're out of Missouri. What do you say? Heritage. Her- <laughs> what heritage? They don't make a country ham. Oh, we'll just eat their ham. Eat, yeah, ham is look. Look, a fresh ham is a fresh is a fresh ham, right? Like God wants hams to be cured. He especially wants them to be cured into country hams and or dry cured uh, hams. Like this is like like if a pig is gonna die, right? You're gonna kill a pig, right? Pigs are smart. Uh, they're friendly. They're amazing creatures. You're gonna kill this pig because it's so delicious. Like you owe it to the pig. To make the the ham into a dry cured country ham, seriously, like it's like the height of what can happen to uh, a, a pig in terms of meat. Right? It's the height of what can happen. I mean, um, anyway, that's my feeling about it. Uh, <laughs> thank you. This has been Cooking Issues, and we'll see you again next week. You've been listening to Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. And today at 3 p.m., there will be a live episode of The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Ian Nauer spent nearly a decade cooking in Gourmet's Tech's Test Kitchen, catered for Ina Garten and the Barefoot Contessa herself, and now is writing a cookbook for Houghton Mifflin based on 
being a big city country boy. Again, tune into the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com every Tuesday at 3 p.m. And right now we're running a promotion where you, the listener, can win five Porterhouse Pork Chops. All you need to do is send me an email at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.com or follow us on Twitter at HRN Update. Send me a message. The first person to contact me with the code word Bib Salad will win five Porterhouse Pork Chops from Heritage Foods USA. Again, you've been listening to the Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for tuning in. Now when my baby sees me, she's gonna bust my head right in.